Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is an On the Media Podcast Extra. I'm Bob Garfield, and this is about deja vu. It starts with this week's escalation of tensions between the United States and Iran. Breaking news just as we came on the air tonight, word the U.S. is sending 1,000 additional troops to the Middle East amid these rising tensions with Iran. And tonight, This as we have new images just declassified tonight of what Team Trump says is an Iranian attack on two tankers last week. Tonight, the new threat from Iran. That country saying within 10 days it will exceed the limit of its uranium stockpile, violating the nuclear deal, that deal the U.S. had already pulled out of. President Trump says he doesn't want war, and neither does President Hassan Rouhani. But haven't we been here before? Attacks on Gulf shipping, uranium stockpiles to build WMD. And as tensions rise, there are even echoes of Ahmed Chalabi. Remember him? Back in 2003, the businessman and politician became a prominent voice of Iraqi dissent against the regime of Saddam Hussein and eventually took on the role of de facto leader in exile of a dreamed-of democratic post-Saddam Iraq. A darling of neocon hawks, his so-called Iraqi National Congress was not only misrepresented as a shadow government with broad popular support, but as a source of damning intelligence about Saddam's supposed weapons of mass destruction. If Chalabi didn't exist, the Bush administration would have had to invent him. So flash forward 16 years as Trump and his advisors rattle sabers at Iran. Here comes Chalabi 2.0, Iranian commentator Heshmat Alavi, a dependable denouncer of the mullah's regime. Alavi has been portrayed as a courageous dissident with a broad constituency and rare insight into the inner workings of Iranian theocracy. 30,000 Twitter followers, op-eds in The Hill, Forbes, The Daily Caller, The Diplomat, The Federalist, Voice of America, etc., an ever-growing profile. And his analysis, such as his assertion that Obama's nuclear deal with Iran pumped money into the mullah's military budget, is a boon to the Trump administration as much as Chalabi's WMD claims were to Cheney and Bush. Yes, if he didn't exist the Hawks would have to invent him. Murtaza Hussein is a writer at The Intercept who was alerted to Alavi's increasing influence and decided to investigate. But it was more than just articles he found. Alavi also had a reputation as a harasser of those who didn't agree with his stance. Intellectuals and journalists and foreign policy critics who did not hew to his exact very hawkish political beliefs. He was a notorious Mm. troll, to put it in other ways. And his writing almost entirely in English, not Farsi. His audience, Western, not Iranian. That's correct. He was targeting a Western audience with English language, American publications. He published a few articles for Voice of America Persian, but it's very clear that the predominant audience for his articles were English-speaking Westerners. All right, so if you're an Iran hawk, let's just say like John Bolton, almost too good to be true. And on that subject, you have written in The Intercept of some very interesting news. So Hashmat Alavi 
is not a real person. He, in fact, was a team of people in Albania who created this persona, who worked for an organization, a very controversial organization, which was banned as a terrorist group until seven years ago, called the Mujahideen Khalq, or MEK. And this writer, activist, and dissident was a project of this organization. They had a commander of the unit that ran this persona, and they had a number of people working on day-to-day writing and posting under its name. And this fake person had gotten a considerable following in foreign policy circles in the United States, so much so that the White House was reading them. It's uh, kind of amazing. Tell me about the MEK. What is this group? What are its goals? Who's in charge? Well, they are a dissident group against the Iranian government who has the distinction of being one of the only groups which even opponents of the Iranian government also tend to highly dislike. They are accused of being cultish in their behavior. They are very authoritarian and shadowy. They're deeply unpopular in Iran because they sided with Saddam Hussein during the war with Iran that occurred in the 80s. And by the U.S., they were considered for several decades to be a terrorist group. And it was only as a result of very intensive lobbying and financial payments to prominent U.S. political figures, in 2012, they were removed from the terrorist designation list. They're very deeply tied to neoconservatives, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and others who are geopolitical opponents of Iran. But they're not popular in Iran, and they're not viewed as a legitimate opposition group. What has been accomplished here is what has always been known in law enforcement circles as a long con. How did the MEK go about building this Heshmat Alavi persona? The story that I reported is based on a defector's testimony from the MEK. There were two ultimate sources which confirmed the origins of Heshmat Alavi. But this individual I spoke with had very direct knowledge because they were working on the same team as the people who were running the Hashmat Alavi operation. And what he described to me was a unit that had, at any given time, three and, by some accounts, five people. The Twitter account for this account opened in 2014 and it became publishing articles a few years after that. But they would get orders of what they should write today, what they should tweet today, who they should send emails to today. And the the sum total of all this activity was far more than any real person, one individual could do on their own. To write 60 articles for Forbes alone in one year is a phenomenally prolific output for any writer. Hashmat Alavi was writing dozens and dozens of articles just for one outlet, in addition to his other writing, in addition to the blog that he ran, in addition to highly choreographed, highly structured tweets. If they're one person... This is their full-time job, and really it was the full-time job of several people. But it's not just a question of ghostwriting for an actual ghost. It's also everything that surrounded it, the bot activity that would comment on Olive pieces and create the illusion of a large audience and a large constituency, which I guess lent credibility to this manufactured persona. That's exactly right. Hashmat Alavi was simply one node in a broader program of swaying discourse about Iran by the MEK. 
And now the MEK does lobbying in the real world, too, to cultivate elite political figures. And this online sphere of discourse, there's a, some question at some point, is this real? Is it, does it have an impact? Is this not as serious as things that happen offline? But in reality, it is quite serious. And we see that Hashman Alavi never met anyone in person. He never went to shake anyone's hand at the White House. He never went out for drinks with them. But he was able to influence them or at least get into their orbit simply through his articles. And so much so that they felt comfortable enough with his articles to use them to justify their policies because they could point to Hashmat Alavi and the other bots and fake accounts which surrounded him and say, look, there are tons of Iranians, including writers and dissidents, who agree that we should have sanctions that cripple the Iranian uh, economy and Iranian civil society. So as a hawk in the United States, I'm the real voice of Iranians. And here's Hashmat Alavi's article to give you an example of what they think. And it creates a synthetic audience. What I find very troubling about this is that there's an epistemological crisis in society at the moment. And what I mean by that is there's a crisis for many people where you can get legitimate information from, what is a genuine source of knowledge. And we see that it's gotten so bad that even the White House is relying on bad information. It's relying on information that's coming from sources that it does not know the origin of. It is justifying policies which are matters of life and death, such as Iran policy, on the basis of articles written by, as it turns out, fraudulent sources. On that subject of epistemological crisis and information sources, you've just described the dynamics of fake news in general. It's confirmation bias. It creates filter bubbles creates a cycle of people, real or invented in this case, confirming your preordained worldview. And social media is just the ticket for creating that environment. Which makes me want to ask you about the news organizations or media organizations that were involved in this. Part of me says that they completely failed in their role to make sure that at a minimum the people whose words they printed have a pulse. But another part of me says, you know, once you go through the process of looking up the contributor's bona fides, someone from somewhere else in the world, and you see a resume and you see a body of work, truthfully, I think I could have been suckered by this myself, at least for a while. How much should we blame the, the likes of uh, the Daily Caller and Forbes for what's happened here? A few of the places that publish them, and I would say specifically Daily Caller and The Diplomat, they stopped publishing him after two or three articles because they had some concerns about the quality of the articles. The submission quality tended to be quite poor. Grammatically, it was poor. There was a lot of advocacy and not much reporting in the stories. And after two or three articles, they stopped publishing Hashmat Alavi. Publishing him in the first place is to some degree a failure, but they did have some sort of internal alarm which made them think this isn't something that should represent our publication. Let's move away from it. What I find more troubling is Forbes because they continue to publish Hashmat Alavi for a period of a year. And not just did they publish him for a year, they published him with incredible regularity. He published 61 times in a year in a very critical time when the U.S. was trying to 
extricate itself from the Iran deal. He was providing ideological ballast for that decision. And they kept publishing him again and again and again and again and again. And this is also troubling. The Diplomat, for instance, put a very prominent note at the top of the articles stating that these articles have been found to be apparently the product of a fraudulent author. And they were very transparent about what their failures may have been in publishing him. Forbes, on the other hand, deleted all the articles after the story came out. As far as I know, there's no note to their readers or accounting on how we failed in publishing this or any indication of what we may do differently in the future. They just tried to wipe it off the web and then move on as though nothing happened. And I think that every organization makes mistakes. However, when you make a mistake, especially when it's something so serious that it impacts public understanding of a very critical issue, you have to have an accounting. You have to be transparent about your behavior with, with regards to that. So just deleting the articles and pretending everyone will forget about Hashmat Alavi, it really doesn't cut it. I was amused to note that there was a comment to your story from none other than Heshmat Alavi himself, <laughs> taking some umbrage at the accusation that he has never been alive. Where does that take us? Well, I was very prepared that after I wrote this article about them, they would start attacking me. And the next day they did. They attacked me and tried to say that I was connected to people who were connected to the government of Iran. And it's not very effective or compelling as form of uh, criticism or uh, even personal attack. It's just they can only defend themselves using one vector, which is this sort of uh, malicious behavior. Because in the end, they had to admit that they don't really exist. And they also had to admit that they are supporters of MEK. So I was very gratified when I saw their blog post on the Hashmat Alevi's site, which confirmed the thesis of the story. I guess this has been put to bed, maybe. But we have just witnessed the 2016 election and the work of Russian intelligence and Macedonian teenagers and the president of the United States himself floating lie after lie after lie and getting elected on the strength of it, no matter how diligently people like you debunked them one after the other. So is this going to be just a little footnote in the history of America's relationship with Iran? Or are we just witnessing the latest evolution of fakeness influencing political debate? I hope that there aren't other fake or malicious sources of information out there which are swaying U.S. policy or U.S. discourse about Iran and which may result in more serious consequences than Hashmat Alavi did. Well, I'm not totally confident that's the case. But I do think that Hashmat Alavi is a harbinger of the new world we're going to be inhabiting in which sources of information are going to be harder and harder to evaluate for their veracity. And that a fake persona could get so far as Mr. Alavi did in the public discourse, even to the point of reaching the White House, should raise serious alarms about that. Murtaza, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Murtaza Hussein is a writer at The Intercept. After deleting Heshmat Alavi's account, Twitter then inexplicably reactivated, and it is still active as of this recording. 
Now, before I let you go, I have a favor to ask. If you're a regular listener to All Things OTM, you will have heard Brooke mention a couple of weeks ago that we have an important goal that we're trying to reach this month. Right now, we're halfway through the month, and we're just over halfway to our goal. Thank you, by the way, to everyone who's already contributed. So, here's the deal. We need 1,000 of you to donate to OTM by June 30th. If we can make this happen, we unlock a $25,000 grant, money we desperately rely on to keep bringing you the reporting that you rely on. Any amount will help us meet this goal, but if you're able to give... $85. We'll thank you with a copy of Matthew Desmond's book, which will give you essential background information as you listen to Brooks' magnificent series on eviction. So go to onthemedia.org slash donate or text OTM to 70101. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Bob Garfield. See you soon.